But other listeners, I'm a bit conflicted about the next story because, as you know, over the decades, I have always insisted in running my fingers over the heads of prospective guests, not in affection, but to make sure they're worthy of your attention. To me, this has been an absolutely rock-solid scientific procedure, but I am about to be challenged in my assumptions. You've probably seen somewhere diagrams of a human head viewed from the side with the head divided into many different segments. Now, those segments might be numbered or named. Now, if the drawing was from the 19th century, chances are it was an example of phrenology, the the science of reading bumps on the head and to determine what sort of brain or even character the person had. Two heads may be better than one, except on the morning after the night before. But even one head, according to phrenologists, indicates the kind of brain underneath by its bumps. Said head, nut, knob, boko or napper, is divided into parts or portions. And each portion or part has a name, denoting the faculty it's supposed to represent. It's also frightfully complicated. Phrenology was, of course, uh, used as an argument for racial superiority, a sorry history which we're all too aware of here in the Pacific colonies of Australia and New Zealand, but it was also turned on its head, if you'll forgive an appalling pun, and uh, practised by female, black and Māori phrenologists. The practice was as widespread as yoga is today, and we know this thanks to Alexandra Roginsky. Now, Alex has just published a book called, and uh, an extensive title, called uh, Science and Power in the 19th Century Tasman World, Popular Phrenology in Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand. It was uh, 10 years in the making. And Alex is a visiting fellow at both Deakin University and the State Library of New South Wales. Now, Alex, I, I felt your head before the interview and decided you were a, a fine and proper guest, but I knew that previously because you talked to us last year about the history of self-improvement and wellness. Yes, thank you so much for having me on the show, Philip, and I am so pleased to hear that you're using these cutting-edge methods um, to size up your prospective guests because it's certainly borne out in the quality of your show. Phrenology was one of the more extreme of the, uh, well, the sideline sciences. Would you just talk us through what a typical phrenologist would do? Sure. So phrenology was based on the idea that um, a person's character and intellect could be judged from the shape of their head. We know that um, now that it's not true in the way it functioned, but it did hold huge popular sway. 
And so if, let's say, at the end of the 19th century or the early 20th century, you went to see a phrenologist, um, you might be taken along by your mum, for example, who's wanting to work out how to shape her wayward child, Um, or you might go along because you're a young person who's not sure what kind of career they're going to pursue. So you'd go into a little room, perhaps in an arcade or a shop front, and you'd begin this consultation process. And that might involve your head being touched, it might involve measurement, it might involve conversation with this phrenologist. And you'd come away with that in that particular model with a chart that would have um, all of the so-called organs of the head marked up and you'd get a number for those. Um, These were often very flattering documents because phrenologists knew on which side their bread was buttered. And, And it would have advice for you as to where you were weaker in terms of your attributes, uh, what what things you could work on, where you're really strong. And some people held on to these um, records and notes for their entire lives. They were actually, you know, kind of guiding documents or things they might look back at over time. Now, Alex, the idea came from a Viennese doctor who wasn't Sigmund Freud. No, no, but this this doctor, Franz Josef Gull, he devised a system that, well, he said as a basic premise, the brain and the skull develop together, so therefore you can judge the shape of the brain from the, the shape of the skull, and that underneath, the brain, in fact, was divided into a number of so-called organs that performed a range of functions. And this was an early form of what we know as um, cerebral localization today. So we know that different bits of the brain do do particular things, but the things that he kind of determined and mapped were pretty out of alignment, (laughs) some would say, with uh, what we know about the brain today. But it became this very compelling tool for exposing what was inside, what was inside the human head and and a way to think about it and talk about it. Now, I followed his principles and have divided my my head into uh, a number of what you call organs. At the last count, I had had about 27. Was that the average number? Oh, fantastic. Well, that was Gull's system that he came up with, with time as some of the great popularizers took it on. So there were some people who really kind of ratcheted up its popularity, especially when they started saying that, you know, you you were determined by your head, but you could also improve within that. And you could, in fact, use this as a tool for self-knowledge. And so those organs were added over time and, and the the system was tweaked because it was just so widespread and such a source of pamphlets and materials and and discussion. Alex, how did it get to Australia and New Zealand? So, you know, like a lot of other uh, settler technologies, it came with the settlers themselves. So there's very, you know, early signs of people thinking about how it might be applied to penal design, for example. But it really takes off in its popular sense from the 1850s with these um, travelling lecturers who would come through. So if you think of these emerging colonies as being these huge sites of mobility where people were coming to pursue wealth through gold and then also trying to build on that gold economy, 
Travelling performers, um, including popular scientists, were part of that wave of people coming through. I, I, was, I was always particularly impressed by uh, Professor Bruce. Tell the listeners about this fine fellow. <laughs> Well, Professor Bruce uh, was uh, an Irishman who lands in uh, Tassie in 1870 and he starts lecturing through the east coast of Australia as well as in New Zealand. He spends quite a few years there as well. So there's a lot of travel across the Tasman um, at this point with shipping and so people are following, you know, wherever the money is at the time. I mean, he works his way up the east coast of Australia with mixed success. We know that um, he, you know, sometimes audiences were, were on his side, sometimes not. He he ends up in a in a brawl with one person in Benalla when someone tries to interfere with his performance, and he punches them with what a newspaper described as real science and thumps him across the room. <laughs> that, gave them um, the, that gave them a lump in the head, which would have been a phenologist's <laughs> delight. <laughs> exactly, Philip. And then he, when he, he lands in Baladila, and, and often, um, you know, these are towns are in the, in the making and trying to find a venue for a show is a challenge. So he ends up lecturing in a slab hut that has recently been a mortuary, effectively, or so-called depository of a dead body awaiting an inquest. And this show is described as a very gloomy affair. It doesn't go well. And then um, when he's in the Hunter Valley town of Greta, his audience is, is kind of whittled away by the fact that there is another attraction in town, which is a Mississippi alligator. So he's kind <laughs> of... Uh, <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Now twist the knife and tell me that phrenology was not part of that uh, solid scientific work that was evolving. Well... I mean, it's this is so interesting, Philip, because this is a period when the scientific disciplines are really gaining traction. It's also when in the colonies, when we have the establishment of universities, of museums, uh, there's people who are shaping the disciplines of anatomy, of botany, um, in that institutional context. But if you think about, um, I guess if we think about events from recent years and the pandemic and the way that science is interpreted in institutional setting versus the forms it takes in public life and how people engage with it, it's really, um, those things are often quite, um, well, they're running in parallel channels. And Phrenologists, many phrenologists recognised that the institutional sciences were gaining this currency. People were starting to look at scientists as authority figures and they were trying to make themselves into that as well. So, you know, there's people who were making up credentials. There was a kind of dress that they would wear in terms of top hats and frock coats. They were calling themselves professors. And, and the term professor had a much looser meaning in terms of signifying a person of specific expertise or knowledge on a topic. Um, but they were definitely out there in the public space. And 
science at this time, the mid-century, mid-19th century science was also something that was really participatory. So people would go along to lectures, they'd go along to scientific displays, they would be often trying to make up their minds for themselves. And so phrenology very much lives within that space in terms of these popular lecturers. You talked about uh, dressing up with top hats. This reminds me, in a sense, of the... uh, the cover of your book, there's a woman wearing a, well, a large bead necklace and a kind of tunic dress over what looks like trousers. Tell me about this surprising phrenologist. Well, this is uh, someone who referred to herself at times as the wonderful woman. And this was Madame Sibley. She was a very um, well-known lecturer in phrenology and also mesmerism, which was a kindred science where you'd put people under the spell. And as you allude to, she had this stage costume that she would wear. She was very much part of this demi-monde of performers. And although there were were many fewer phrenological lecturers who were women uh, in Australia and Aotearoa, Um, But the women who made a go of it seemed to be quite successful, partly because they were this um, showy um, attraction. And she was a very um, skilled performer. She um, toured through southeastern Australia and had a lot of write-ups in the local press. She was touring with her children as well. And, yeah, kind of demonstrated that flair for showmanship. But it was pretty pretty out there of her to do this because you're writing of a time when women were often not, not even deemed suitable to be spectators for political stump speeches. And there she is up on stage. That's right. So she was very smart, very confident and charismatic by all accounts. And she had to be incredibly tough to make it. There is a very um, distressing moment in her life when she has to separate from a partner in a country town um, who has beat her basically in a life-threatening way and he's been taking all of her money and she goes through this incredibly bruising legal process in this community to get away from him. And then she becomes quite violent herself. Uh, subsequently. So there's newspaper articles about her ending up in court because someone's come, you know, after her for a bill or something like that and she will punch them um, (laughs) or, you know, (laughs) reach for her whip. And I'm really, you know, I think a lot about this moment and I wonder if this is also part of the performance that you have to be, you may have to make yourself so fearsome to make it on the road at this time. And and she really does make it. You tell us about a, uh, a man of African descent who uh, remade himself as a phrenologist in New Zealand in 1880. That's right. Uh, so... This person uh, was called Leo Meadow. Uh, he, he sort of pops up in the record in the garrison town of Fungnui in 1863 where he does various things. He's, he's a hairdresser. He runs stage shows. Um, he's kind of, he's got a slightly grifty uh, edge to his personality and then he takes off uh, into the goldfields um, trying to make his way there. 
is involved in some legal difficulties. He's accused of indecent acts with children, eventually acquitted of that. And he surfaces in Otago and it remakes himself as a phrenological lecturer. So he goes from being Benjamin Strawn to being Leo Meadow to lecturing on the science. He lectures with a on stage with a pocket watch and plaster casts of Ned Kelly's head. And this becomes his identity as he travels to the point where some years down the track he's he's accused by you know, there's a, there's actually a court case where a policeman says, I know who you are, I know you're Benjamin Strawn, you used to cut my hair, and he, you know, flat out denies it. So <laughs> he makes this remarkable transformation. He reads the head of Takuti, who is a Maori resistance fighter at a certain point. He reads heads in bars. He's this becomes this very well-known figure. Um, and phrenologists of African descent were were not uncommon, especially uh, in America as well. Um, So he's part of that tradition in a sense. And he ends up um, sailing over to Tasmania at the end of the 19th century, and that's where he passes away in the end. And uh, phrenologists of Maori descent become quite common. Well, it's certainly, um, there, are, there are these snippets that surface in the record um, that they're, they're often fleeting. I'm working with, you know, when you're trying to understand a practice in everyday life, these are quite fleeting um, moments. But there's this very poignant moment that takes place in 1878 when uh, George Grey, and who was the Premier and, and the Native Minister travelling, to these resistance hotspots in um, the western central part of the North Island onto Waikato country and country of the Ngati Manyapoto and and in this um, so-called king country. And during these visits, which are really diplomatic negotiations and meetings with Maori leaders, and, and there's feasts and all of the things that you would expect during diplomatic processes, there's this moment when a man called Tefare, who has travelled through the empire as part of an ethnographic show, he reads the native minister's head, um, John Sheehan's head, and it's this moment of kind of play and mirth and then comes to haunt the government a year later when the opposition is saying, you know, uses it to say, well, you guys were not taking this whole process really seriously. You were just sitting around having your head read by this man. So you kind of get a sense of the way that it's part of the vernacular, like the the physical practice of what people might do when they gather. Did you find any evidence of Aboriginal phrenologists? Well, not phrenologists per se, but certainly accounts of Aboriginal people who encounter phrenology as an um, entertainment form and are passing their own judgments on it um, because it was such a widespread practice. So, for example, in 1867, the Aboriginal cricket team, which is, you know, about to travel to the UK as the first Australian cricket team, attends a lecture by a phrenologist called and mesmerist called Thomas Guthrie Carr. 
And then there's a newspaper article that mentions how on the train back to Melbourne, the impersonating Carr and all of his actions and his gestures, and there's a lot of mirth and humour. So you get a sense of, you know, people sampling what is entertainment on offer at the time. There's also um, this great anecdote that the Aboriginal activist um, and former resident of the Maloga Mission, Hugh Anderson, tells at a lecture in 1905 about a phrenologist coming to visit a particular Aboriginal group and um, they basically turn the tables on him. So someone convinces him to get into a boat and they row the canoe out into the water And the article um, recounts him saying that when the pair reached the centre of the river, the black fellow turned round in the canoe and looking at the white man said, well, boss, do you know anything about swimology? And then the boat gets capsized and he's dunked in the river and it's this kind of moment where, you know, this group is making fun of the phrenologists and phrenologists were often the butt of people's jokes as well. I have to give up my lifelong uh, belief in phrenology for the following reason, that the most uh, offensive part of the uh, phrenology phenomenon was its use against Indigenous people uh, to judge them. And uh, the worst part was that the uh, collecting of skulls, of course, some sometimes digging them up from, from graves... That's true. And this is how phrenology has, for very good reason, um, been thought about and written about and studied in Australia and in other settler colonies as, as well, because the way it manifested was as part of this process of dispossession and oppression of First Nations people. So, it's really important that that is always foregrounded um, when we talk about the science. Finally, your ultimate point is that science or what is perceived as science really performs many functions and uh, illustrates so much about its society. Yes, I think that we shouldn't be surprised by the way that people apply natural knowledges of the body in ways that are contradictory or don't always make um, sense to us. I mean, um, a lot of people say to me, oh, there were phrenologists who were also ministers of religion. How does that all, you know, how does science and faith fit together? And the point is that these things on the loose, as, as people apply popular ideas to try and understand their own bodies and their place in the world will take on very individual hues and also how people cherry pick from something that is so diverse and wild like phrenology um, can be surprising and is often very individual. I look forward to talking to you again when you write another extraordinary book. I look forward to to feeling your skull and ascertaining your suitability for the program. I've been talking to Alex Roginski, the author of, and he takes a deep breath, Science and Power in the 19th Century Tasman World, Popular Phrenology in Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's published by Cambridge University Press. And you need your head read if you don't rush out and get a copy. Thanks, Alex. Thanks so much, Philip. It's been a pleasure. ABC Listen. 
podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 